This is a case from the Shoyoroku again. Lately I've been uh, gravitating to the Shoyoroku for some reason. Zhaoju asks about death, the introduction. Sansheng and Zhefeng were spring orchids, autumn chrysanthemums. Zhaoju and Tuzi were the gem of Bian, the gold of Yan. On a markless balance, both sides are even. In a bottomless boat, they cross in one plane. Where the two meet, what then? Case. Zhaoju asked Tuzi, when someone who has undergone the great death then returns to life, what then? Tuzi said, he can't go by night. He should arrive at daylight. The verse. The seed castle, the eon rock, suddenly exhausting the beginning. The living eye in the ring illuminates vast emptiness. Can't go by night. Arrive by the dawn's light. The sound of the family couldn't be entrusted to goose or fish. So last week, last issue, uh, we talked a little bit about the phrase dying on the cushion. And the two layers that can be seen or identified in this phrase. First layer being the, the letting go of our attachments to concepts, ideas, opinions, form. What we can grasp, everything that can be grasped. And the second layer being the realization that a physical death is imminent. It's not an option. Which essentially means that holding on is not an option either. Maybe a feeling of a temporary fix, but it really doesn't do anything. So two layers of one phrase. And this realization with its two layers is, is actually essential on the path of Zen training. And it is imperative for a practitioner to go through this as an experience, not as a concept, not as, which actually happens, not as a process of letting go of one set of concepts and then adapting a new set of concepts, which we title Buddhism. Essentially, will will not be much different other than maybe will feel different, look different, but essentially same mechanism, or the same mechanism leads to that. So. You know, all, all Zen-related writings and teachings originate out of this fundamental realization or the need to realize this fundamental truth. And all, all 
teachings emphasize the vital importance of awakening. Without that, there will be no Zen to speak of. So they speak of it, and at the same time, they manifest it clearly in the way they speak, in the way they act, the way they move. The dialogues, sometimes one word, sometimes a sentence, both pushing us to realize and at the same time expressing what it is that we need to realize in one phrase. So it's clear, in that it's clear that many of those stories about these ancient masters expressed it in a very unique way, expressed the same truth in different ways. It happens because what we realize is essentially of the same nature. But the way it happens is utterly unique. The way we each break through what we need to break through is unique because we are unique. We are of the same nature, and there's only one of you. And this means that when we read stories about how those great masters awakened, we should be careful to not try to emulate their lives or uh, situations they went through experiences they went through in order to awaken, because the way they awakened is the way they awakened. The question is, what about this one here? How, that, how does this one here need to awaken? What is your path? What do you bring into the practice? Because that's what you have to work with. We sit together, we practice together, but the work itself is different. So dying the great death, as it is called, is, is the biggest challenge of our practice. It is, because without that, there's no opening. And with that, we need to recognize that we will encounter a great deal of inner resistance as we take on that challenge. We will encounter, we do encounter resistance, and it feels very natural to actually resist that. I mean, who wants to die, right? I remember early in my training, I remember times of feeling like I, I am holding a sledgehammer and breaking the walls of the house I'm residing in. It felt this way. It felt as if I am actually doing it through the practice and the roof will very soon collapse on me. 
the whole house will crumble. There was a very interesting feeling of, I am actually going against my instinct almost, of, of survival. And there were times I wanted to run away from it, stop doing it, as if there was a voice telling me, are you nuts? What are you doing? This is madness. But often what we think is mad is sane and what we think is sane is mad. It's just that we are so indoctrinated to think this way that it does feel like we are going against the grain and it does feel like we rather not do this. So luckily by then, at the time I felt like I'm hitting the walls of the house I'm residing in, by then there was enough trust in me to keep going and to not quit, to not run away. Somehow I recognized no, I should keep going. It's almost like an inner battle between two different streams, forces. One says, get out. The other one says, sit down, shut up, don't move. One says, look. The other one says, don't look. And it feels this way, even after years of practice you may still feel once in a while the old voices wake up. Something moves them, something propels them, some trigger. And then there is a sense of wanting to run away again. But run away to what? Run away from what? Where are we going? What, which impulses do we obey, essentially? All are there, different impulses. What do we obey? What is fueling our day-to-day -day life, our practice? You always practice. You've heard this before. Sometimes people say, I took a break for a couple of months and I did not practice, but that's not quite true. I took a break means I practiced something else. So in those two months or two years or five years or whatever it is, I got better at something else. We always practice, we always get better at what we do. And the difference is that when we choose to practice Zen, for example, then we choose to get better at this. Because if we don't, we are getting better at something else. There's a story about a traveling monk who, while on a journey to visit different teachers, got lost in the mountains. Eventually he came to a hut where he found an old man who he thought was a, was a woodsman. 
somebody living there, away from everybody else, to actually a practitioner. So the monk knocked on the door and asked the guy, how can I get out of this mountain? And the old man replied, go on following the flow of water. And indeed, by following the flow of water, you can't get out of the mountain because the water flows down and out of the mountain to wherever it flows. It's a great, it's a great way to find your way out. But there's more than just geographical advice, suggestion. Go on following the flow of water means follow the right stream, the true stream in you that will lead out of the mess into clarity, into openness, into the vast reality as is. Water naturally flows, naturally flows down. It has its own inner mechanism that it naturally knows how to obey. But sometimes the sound of this stream is just so faint and so far away or so distant that we create so much noise and we can't hear it. So we get quiet. So we can hear that faint sound, the natural stream of water. And then we learn to follow it. Learn to trust. That even when it gets loud, it's still there. It's still flowing. Our practice can help us learn how to identify the habitual patterns of thought and behavior. The patterns that take us away from that stream, from the natural stream. And also can help us identify the automatic chain of reactivity we get lost in. We give so much weight to, so much credence to. And when the patterns are identified, the chain can be intercepted and cut off. And then something new and refreshing emerges. We begin to recognize and trust and underground and forgotten stream that just got covered up by so much noise. So at that time, at that point, go on following the stream means to keep connecting with this natural deep stream in us. Just go on, just keep going, no matter what, keep practicing. Stay steadily on that path at all times. And then, of course, we learn to trust that more than we trust our fears and insecurities. This deep stream is like an inner bubbling brook speaking to us directly, constantly, 
offering guidance, support. It's like a lighthouse pointing out the direction to a ship lost in the ocean. It's always there. But we reject the voice because it appears to be, appears to be foreign and unfamiliar at first. We turn away from the light because it is asking us to trust and to jump into the freezing waters. Trust and jump and see what happens. It is not telling us, here's what's going to happen. It's just saying, trust. That's all. Trust this to be none other than who you are. And with that trust, you jump into the freezing water. We make elaborate plans and support them with exhaustive research. But how often life completely ignores these plans and shows up unannounced, freshly cooked, of the ingredients from the moment, the available ingredients, not what we want, but what is. Life knows how to obey what it needs to obey. All we need to do is get on with the program, flow with it. It sounds simple, but obviously it's quite challenging. But the ingredients of the moment, what's happening right now? What do I have around me? That's what I use to cook from, not what I want, what is. What is is fresh, what I want is stale. fresh, but what do we do? We complain, we argue, we resist, feel defeated, become hardened and jaded because life does not obey me. And it really doesn't matter how much we study, calculate, plan, the unknown of the next moment is always greater than the known, always for everybody, even after a lifetime of study. The unknown is greater. And since the next moment is inseparable from this moment, the same applies to this one here. Since the next moment is unknown, and the next moment and this moment are inseparable, this is also unknown. this acceptable? Can we live with that? Can we merge with an unknown? Our history is telling us that we don't want to. Our personal history, the history of the world, humanity, is telling us, no, we don't want to merge with this. We want to do all we can to 
run away from it, to create something, run into that, into our own creation. Bottom line is there is no way to know. We can't rely on conceptual knowledge. And we also know that what is always fully available is the experience of life itself as it shows up moment by moment. That we know. That is available. That is clear. That's all there is. And if it is acceptable to us, then we open up. Then we can listen. Then we can take our cues from life itself. From what's going on. Learn. Study the moment. Ask. Life, the moment. Where do I need to be right now? How do I need to respond right now? And it'll tell you. It'll tell you whether saying something is appropriate or keeping your mouth shut is appropriate. It'll tell, it's always telling us. It's just so vested in nonsense that we can't hear. If it's telling you to shut up, shut up. If it's telling you to get up and do something, get up and do something. It's not personal. It's obeying its own true nature, which is our true nature. But we have to be quick. We have to listen and quickly obey, because if we don't, a second later, we're already trapped in obeying something else. Very quickly. This is why Zen is asking us to be spontaneous and unplanned in our everyday mundane activities. To be spontaneous but to not be impulsive. You have to be careful to not confuse the two. To speak and act from the unknown rather than from the known. Once Rinzai spoke about the true person of no rank, always freely coming and going through the senses, through the pores of our face, skin. And one of the monks asked, who is the person of no rank? Well, Rinzai got down from his seat, grabbed the guy by the collar and said, speak, speak. Monk couldn't say anything. So Rinzai let him go and said, what a dry piece of crap the person of no rank is. In your face, all the time. Now, speak. Can you speak? Or do you need to go to your bank of memories, thoughts, concepts, feelings, calculations, before you can utter a word. 
before you can act. Are we paralyzed by reality or do we come to life when we meet reality? We are paralyzed when we go to the baggage that we bring with us. But when we can put the baggage down and turn to reality and meet it and match it, we are spontaneous. We come to life. How do you respond to the moment? Is it calculated or is it spontaneous? Is it naturally flowing? Are you vested in an outcome? It is always so available. That's all these stories are there for, to wake us up, snap us out, to not be calculated, to not plan, to not wait for any other moment. To not wait for any other moment. One day, Zhao Zhu was sitting. His attendant came over and whispered in his ear, The great king has come. The great king has come. Zhao Zhu looked surprised and said, Myriad felicitations, O great king. The attendant said, No, no, he has not come yet. And Zhao Zhu said, And you said he has come. And you said he has come. What an opportunity. Zhao Zhu was happy to see his attendant realizing. Great. The great king has come. Well, no. He's on his way. Okay. Well, let me know when he comes. I see that you still want to wait. Okay, you wait. And I'll be here to support your waiting. And this is what we do. This is what teaching is. It's patiently waiting for us, nudging us, but waiting. I'll wait. You take your time. Don't take too long. Wake up, snap out. Better sooner than later. Die so you can wake up. Die so you can die the great death so you can wake up the, to the greatness of life itself. The freshness of life itself. In its most raw and non-concocted form. We die so the true and beautiful colors of each of us can manifest freely, can come to life in the most unique way. As the pointer says, Sunsheng and Jefeng were spring orchids, autumn chrysanthemums. Zhao Zhu and Tuzi were the gem of Bian, the gold of Yan. 
on the markless balance, both sides are even. The bottomless boat, they cross in one plane. Spring Olki, autumn chrysanthemums. Aren't they both equally as beautiful? Different. Smell different, look different. Would you argue the one is more beautiful than the other? They're both amazing manifestations of one reality as each of us is. Now this point I was referring to the awakened manifestation of Sunsheng and Jiafeng. But both of them passed away a long time ago. So today, Today, here, this analogy is pointing at our own inherent beauty as it manifests uniquely. Today, just today. Won't do us much good to celebrate the uniqueness of those teachers. Or maybe we can celebrate their uniqueness by waking up to our own uniqueness. That would be good. Zhao Zhu and Tuzi were the gem of Bian, the pointer says. Now this is Bian. This is referring to a story about Bian, the gem of Bian, referring to a story about a man who found a rough jewel in the mountains and presented it to King Li. The king looked at it and said, this is just an ordinary stone. You're mocking me. He then, he then ordered his attendant to punish Bian and cut off his foot. Later, when King Wu assumed the throne, Bian presented the jewel to him, but again was thrown away and his other foot was cut off. Two kings. Finally, King Wen assumed the throne. Bian held up the jewel and cried out. King Wen summoned him to ask about it. And Bian said, I do not resent the amputation of my feet, but I do resent that a real jewel is taken to be an ordinary stone, that an act of loyalty is taken to be a deception. When the king heard this, he had the stone split and found that it was indeed a precious jewel. He then said, How lamentable that the two former kings found it easy to cut off a man's foot, but found it hard to split a stone. How lamentable. There's a lot in this story. I mean, this is uh, obviously a koan by itself. As many of those stories are. It's a lot here, but it is reflecting on how, we, how our preconceived notions blind us, prevent us from seeing the beauty that is inherent in all things. 
and how our conceptual minds lead us to create harm. It is telling us, showing us what we are obeying and what we are not obeying. And it is giving us an option, maybe, if we can see that. If we can see that. Because it is also pointing at how spiritually rich we all are, regardless of our fears and insecurities. Bian said that an act of loyalty is taken to be a deception. And this is how we fool ourselves. Trusting and obeying the habitual patterns and disregarding the true impulse within. The true bubbling brook. Endless. It never stops. and never begins. Again, what do we obey? The good news is that we can awaken from this dream. And we can thrust into life, raw and naked, as is. But then what? How is life after death? And this is what Zhao Zhu is asking here. He's asking Tuzi. Now, Zhaozhu is the, the great Joshu, as many of you know, who studied with Nansen until Nansen died. Zhaozhu was about 60 years old at that time. And then he decided to travel around and deepen his realization. Now, this is a guy who practiced for 45 years or so. Deeply, deeply realized. So, while he was traveling, he heard a lot about this guy, Tuzi, I want to check him out to see what he's about, to see if he can deepen his understanding. So on the way to Tuzi, to Tuzi's hut, he encountered an old man. And he asked him, are you the hermit Tuzi? The old man said, give me a coin to buy tea and salt. Jaozhu just looked at him and went ahead up the mountain to the hut. There was no one there, so he came in, decided to sit down and wait. Later on, the old man showed up, carrying a jar of oil. Jaozhu said, I've heard a lot about Tuzi, but now all I see is just an old man selling oil. Tuzi said, you only see an old man selling oil. You don't recognize Tuzi. Zhaozhu said, what is Tuzi? Tuzi held up the jar and said, oil, oil. And then Zhaozhu said, I've been a thief all my life, but now I recognize a much greater thief. Now this is where this dialogue of today's koan begins. That's why he asked the question. He recognized there's something there. I can learn something. I can deepen. So he asked about returning to life after death. Not because he did not have experience or experiences of that. 
We just wanted to see what others, other great people who awaken, express it, experience it. So Tuzi said, you can't go by night. You should arrive at daylight. Arrive at daylight. What do we cultivate on the cushion? How do we? How do we step forward from the Zafu? Can we step forward from the Zafu? Where do we arrive? Where we get up, bow, walk away? Then what? We say to die on the cushion, but there's more than one way to die. We can, of course, die and remain motionless, like a piece of wood or rock, numb, unable to hear, unable to speak, to function. Or we can die and then flow with great vigor, like a river in the spring after the snow melts, ready to take on life with all these challenges. Ready to stay true to the source by forgetting the source. By forgetting the source, this is why we cannot arrive at nighttime. Ready to function in a reality that we may or may not like, who cares? We may or may not like it, whether it is on an individual level, national or global level. Whether we agree or disagree with what's happening. Coming from the night, acting in daylight. Of course, at nighttime, all phenomena appears as one. You can see the outline and the visions. In the daylight, the eyes distinguish. Do we separate when we distinguish? Do we create discrimination when we distinguish outlines, when we see different forms? Nighttime, daytime, same place, same time. Or is it? Same place, same time, yet everything changes when we recognize the limited aspects of our senses. When we recognize that what the unknown is much greater than the known. There's a saying that before realizations, for realization, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. As you dive deep into practice for years, you don't know what is a mountain. You don't know what is a river. Mountain is something else. 
you inquire and look, is it? Is it what I see? Is it not what I see? You look and you look and you look and you go deeper and deeper. And then something happens. And then, and then, after all this, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. Peacefully. These challenging times, there's no doubt. Difficult times. Whether it's on a personal level, which comes and goes, but or nationally, what we're encountering is huge. Are we up for that? This is coming from the night, going into daylight. This is where practice matters. This is where practice counts. That's where practice comes to life. And we die so we don't lose ourselves in the madness. So we know how to function, function well. came across uh, this poem or writing by a woman named Clarissa Estes, a poet and a psychoanalyst who specializes in post-trauma recovery. And I wanted to share some of, the, some of what she wrote. I can email the rest, it's longer. She says, my friends, do not lose hope. We were made for these times. I've heard from so many recently who are deeply and properly bewildered. They are concerned about the state of affairs in our world now. Ours is a time of almost daily astonishment and often righteous rage over the latest gradation of what matters most to civilized visionary people. You are right in your ass assessment. The luster and hubris of some have aspired to what to while endorsing acts so heinous against children, elders, everyday people, the poor, the unguarded, the helpless. All that is breathtaking. Yet I urge you, she says, ask you, gentle you, to please not spend your spirit dry by bewildering these difficult times. Especially, do not lose hope. Most particularly because, because the fact is that we were made for these times. Yes, for years we have been learning, practicing, being in training for just this time to meet it at this exact plane of engagement. This is quite amazing, isn't it? We, we, are we have been, we are practicing to be able to meet such challenges. She says, I grew up 
on the Great Lakes and recognize a seaworthy vessel when I see one. Regarding awakened souls, there have never been more able vessels in the waters than there are right now across the world. And they are fully provisioned and able to signal one another as never before in the history of humankind. Look out over the prow where are millions of boats of righteous souls on the waters with you. Even though your veneers may shiver from every wave in this stormy toil, I assure you, the long timbers composing your prow and rudder come from the greater forest. Do we feel this way? Do we feel that we have what it takes? She says, the, the long-grained lumber is known to withstand storms, to hold together, to hold its own, and to advance regardless. In any dark time, there is a tendency to veer towards fainting over how much is wrong in the world. Do not focus on that. There is a tendency to fall into being awakened by dwelling on what is outside your reach, by what cannot yet be. Do not focus there either. That is spending the wind without raising the sails. That is exhausting ourselves, isn't it? Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Which means today, which means right now. What is within our reach? Well, the entire world is within our reach because we are the entire world. Which means your thoughts, words, actions matter greatly. She says, what is needed for dramatic change is accumulation of acts, adding, adding to, adding more, continuing. We know that it does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, but only a small determined group of people who will not give up during the first, second, or hundred gale. Then she ends by saying, when a great ship is in a harbor, it is safe. There's no doubt about that. But that is not what great ships are built for. They're not built to be in at the bay. They're built and designed to deal with rough seas, with storms, as we are. We are built for that. We are practitioners. We practice and hone the ability to see what others may be blind to. We cultivate the ability to hear what many are deaf to. And as our understanding grows and deepens, 
So is our responsibility to meet challenges with fierce determination and to listen deeply, to care for all, to heal, and to be great vessels of peace. The great death, a lousy death, whatever you call it, we all eventually die. The question is, how do you choose to live your life? To die before we die is to come to life, is to be able, to be able to listen and to bring that essence to everyday life and to share it with others and to be a beacon for all. To not be caught up by nonsense and stupidity. And to constantly shake it up so we don't fall into old patterns. So we listen to the fresh and the new. It's right there in our face. The last line of the verse says, The sound of the family could not be entrusted to goose or fish. Now this is uh, based on a story of some princess who was caught up in some war and she was held in a castle somewhere, in a tower. And she did not know how to communicate, how to get the message out to her family. She happened to see a, a, a goose that landed there by the window. So she wrote a little note to the family and she put it, she tied it up to the leg of the goose. The goose flew away and then landed in a lake to drink some water. While it was drinking water, a fish came up and ate and swallowed the, the letter, the note. So then the fish swam away and then the fish was caught by a fisherman who opened the fish up, found the note, went to the family, and the family heard of it and went to save the girl. Point is, there is a roundabout way and there is a clear and immediate way. Which one do we choose? We can go around, round and around and around, for the rest of our lives while the message is clear or we can wake up and see the message go through the great death and be of service 